0: He givers the kingdom of God.
1: Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together.
0: Thanks for joining me on the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monte Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. If you have any questions about our program today, then please reach out to our church family and we'd love to sit down and have a Bible study with you. You can join us on Sunday for our worship service or come to any of our Bible classes every Sunday morning and every Wednesday evening. Or if you'd like, we can meet somewhere public or we can even come to you and have a Bible study wherever you're comfortable, wherever you can learn best. Whatever questions you have, We want to provide a biblical answer. Let's start in Matthew chapter 25 today. If you've got a Bible handy, this is in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 25. I'd like to read Jesus' own words describing the final day, the day of judgment. And it's a fairly long reading, so I'll thank you in advance for your patience as we go through this text. In Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he'll separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we do all of these things? When did we see you and come to you? And in verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Verse 41. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. And you did not invite me in, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he'll answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And in verse 46, at the end of the chapter, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What I want to talk about with you today is the difference between the eternal punishment and the eternal life. In other words, what is heaven and what is hell? Well, because I don't want to end the program on a low note, let's go ahead and begin with hell. We'll answer this question of what is hell? Hell. Hell is the final place for souls who lived unrepentant, rebellious lives. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul had this to say. Speaking of the final day, it says that God will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Hell is a place of eternal destruction. And that's not an oxymoron, but an affirmation of the incomprehensible nature of hell's torment. It's fire that will never be extinguished. It's a worm that will never die. It is death that will never be satisfied. It's so bad that it can only be described as an unending death. Jesus describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew 8, verse 12. It is a place consumed by outer darkness, Matthew twenty two thirteen, 13, Matthew 25, verse 30. Jesus describes the fire of hell as unquenchable, Mark 9, verse 43. Imagine, imagine what that would be like, a fire that is unquenchable. I love to go camping with my family. But while you're camping, there's one thing that you always have to pay attention to, and that's your campfire. Because you put a few logs on and you get the campfire going again, and, and it usually lasts for a little while. Sometimes just a half an hour or so before you've got to put another log on or two. Well, imagine a fire that is unquenchable, that continues to burn without ever being extinguished, without ever being quenched. In hell, the worm does not, does not die, Mark chapter 9, verses 44 through 48, which is symbolic of the everlasting experience of punishment. It is called eternal punishment in the text that we just read in Matthew twenty five forty six. The suffering is seen as conscious and never-ending in Revelation 20, verse 10. And it's called the second death in Revelation 2, verse 11. The second death in the sense that your first death is your physical death, Your second death is an eternal, spiritual death. It's equivalent to a garbage dump, or a place where things go to rot, Mark chapter 9, again in verses 43 through 48. This passage uses the word Gehenna, which is equivalent to the Valley of Hinnom, where dishonored dead bodies and garbage were taken to be burned. And that fire went on and on and on because it was continually being added to when trash was thrown there or dead bodies. It just kept the fire going on and on and on. Quick question here. Are hell and Hades the same thing? Because that's a common misconception that hell and Hades are the same thing. In fact, Hades is only the abode of the dead. And it's closely associated with the idea of the grave. It's related to the Hebrew word sheol, which you sometimes see in, in different translations. It just means the place of the dead, the nether world, or the place where departed souls are gathered after they die. Hades is also compartmentalized, since Deuteronomy 32 verse, 30, uh, verse 22 refers to both a lower and higher part of sheol. Hades and Sheol are incorrectly translated as hell sometimes, which is a completely different word. Again, Gehenna. There are several key verses that demand a distinction between hell and Hades. That is, that they are not the same place. And when you see hell and Hades in the Bible, it's referring to two different places. Notice, first of all, in Revelation chapter 20, in verses 10 through 15, it notes that death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire, which is an obvious reference to hell. The lake of fire is hell, and yet death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Hell cannot be cast into hell, right? I mean, you can't cast something into itself. So whatever Hades is, whatever death and Hades are that will be cast into the lake of fire, it is different from the lake of fire itself. So Hades has to be a distinctive item here. 2 Peter 2 and verse 9 speaks of how God's justice can differentiate between the good and the evil. Noting here, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Think about that. God keeps the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment which means that when an unrighteous person dies, a sinner dies, he doesn't go straight to hell because the day of judgment hasn't happened yet. And yet, even though he doesn't go straight to hell because we're still pre-judgment day, he is kept under punishment of some kind. He is somewhere. The soul of the unrighteous is somewhere. It is kept under punishment for the day of judgment. Evil people who physically die are not currently in hell, and yet they're being held somewhere under punishment until Judgment Day occurs. And this is corroborated by the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through the end of the chapter. There we encounter a rich man and a very poor man named Lazarus. Now the rich man is very, very rich. He lives in splendor, has every comfort. The man, Lazarus, who's very poor, has nothing. He wishes that he could just eat the scraps that are falling from the rich man's table. His body is covered in sores, and dogs come by and and lick his sores. Now, both of the men die. The rich man dies, and he's buried. Lazarus is taken up by the angels into a place of paradise, a place of rest. Abraham's bosom is what it's called in New American Standard Translation. Now, these men are not in heaven and hell. They're dead, and their souls are somewhere yet they're within such a distance of each other that there's visual and auditory connection that can be made from one place to the other. The rich man yells across this great divide, this chasm. He yells over to Abraham and pleads with Abraham to do something on behalf of his brothers, to warn them not to come to this awful place. In verse 23 of this story, It says that both of them were in Hades, and in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, I know there's a a, a distance between them. They're in different parts of Hades, but they're both in Hades. One part of it is a place of torment, and the other place is a place of comfort. The King James Version Bible incorrectly translates every occurrence of Hades into the word hell, which confuses a lot of people. There are many very distinctive words with very different definitions once you look past just the plain and simple English uh, word, hell. So with some of that language confusion out of the way, I want to ask a very important question about hell. Is hell fair? In a book called Through No Fault of Their Own, the author says even the question, is it fair, is hardly appropriate. Christians know that the judge of all the earth will assuredly do what is right. After all, it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. In Fowler's commentary in the book of Matthew, as has this to say, that eternal punishment is neither unjust nor unworthy of God is evidenced by the unexpected appropriateness of God's permitting the righteous and the wicked to realize their last dream, that goal to which their whole moral life tended, is it not evidence of God's final mercy to all that each is granted the unchangeable privilege of loving or hating him forever, of living with him or apart from him forever? The impenitent continue to insist until at last, because they will not accept what God offers, the judgment grants them what they desired." But to their endless chagrin, they discovered too late that their desires were self destructive and horribly mistaken. So, because they shall have eternally what they desired, life apart from God, it shall be eternal punishment. I love the way he puts that. If you weren't following what Fowler was writing there, what he meant was in this life, impenitent people that is, people who are rebellious, who do not want to believe, who refuse to obey, who refuse to accept the gospel message, impenitent people want very badly for God to not exist. All they want is to be left alone. They don't want God interfering in their lives. They don't want to deal with God. They don't want to face God. So, in an ironic twist, in hell they are going to get everything that they wanted, exactly what they wanted, which is eternal existence away from God. You don't want God in your life? All right. Then God will grant you your last, greatest desire. He will not interfere. And then you realize far too late that hell actually is punishment. Life apart from God is punishment. Not only that, but when you ask the question of is hell fair, who really decides what fair is? Is it fair for any of us to go to heaven? Besides, what's more fair than God giving us total, absolute control over our eternal spiritual destination? Nobody has to go to hell. It wasn't designed for us, but we will end up there, when we make that choice. Notice 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 in the New Testament. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or evil. It's echoed in the Old Testament too, in Deuteronomy chapter 30 beginning in verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse, So choose life in order that you may live by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice and by holding fast to him. Now, as an extension of the last question of is hell fair, we might ask this other question, is hell even for you? Going back to our first story, in Matthew 25, where Jesus is talking about the day of judgment, in Matthew 25, verse 41, it says, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Interestingly, hell is not Satan's workshop or his headquarters, but it's his place of eternal punishment. Hell was never prepared for our souls, but for the devil. There's something kind of comforting there. Since God never intended for us to go to hell, he prepared it for the devil and his angels, not for us. We can infer that his original intention was for us to go to heaven. Now, to be sure, people who are rebellious and people who refuse to obey, they will end up in hell. But that wasn't God's original intention. In Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10, it says, "For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves; it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast; for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them." It was always God's intention for us to to be built as his workmanship, to be created for good works, to do things the right things, righteous things things that were prepared beforehand that was always his intention. Well, what about purgatory? This Catholic tradition centers around the idea that a soul can go to a place of torment for a time in order to pay a penalty for his sins. And upon paying that penalty, he or she is released and allowed to enjoy heaven finally. And yet this contradicts the entire reason for Jesus' death on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions, it says in Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. If purgatory is real, then there is another way to have the debt of our sins paid. I didn't need Jesus to die on a cross. I didn't need him to be pierced for my transgressions and crushed for my iniquities. I didn't need my punishment to be brought upon him. And by his wounds we're healed? No, if purgatory is true, then it's by my own wounds that I'm healed. It's by my own piercing, by my own crushing. If I can go through a time of punishment in purgatory and then come out the other end ready to go to heaven. That I just don't see what the whole purpose of Jesus was. Well, like I said, I don't want to end on a low note. We don't want to talk about hell the entire time. We want to ask, what is heaven? First of all, heaven is our hope. Ephesians 1 verse 18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? The Apostle Paul notes that the hope of our calling is life with Christ. Open up to the New Testament in Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Your hope is laid up in heaven. The book of Titus, very short epistle in the New Testament, but Titus 1 and verse 2 has this to say, in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. Friends, live like heaven is your constant goal and hope. Seek the treasures above where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves will never break in and steal. That's Matthew 6 verses 19 through 21. But what else is heaven like? Heaven is like like a big family reunion, except without any of the awkwardness or the sunscreen. It says in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 10, I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, heaven's not going to be like a big family reunion in any of the negative ways. And and even that, still, that analogy is very limiting. But think about this. That many shall come from east and west, and they'll recline at the table with greats like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that's not it. But in Hebrews chapter 11, we read about others as well. People of incredible, sterling faith. And we're going to see those people in heaven, and, and we're not just going to see them up on a pedestal. They're they're not going to be like like celebrities. You're not going to go to heaven and have an autograph book. and And when you when you accidentally see the apostle Peter, you're going to get his autograph or something and go home and tell all of your friends that you you saw Peter at the heaven drugstore. No, we are actually going to have a relationship with people, all of the great faithfuls. All of the great people from old who loved God and served God and obeyed God. We're going to be with them. Heaven will be like a feast where we finally get to have everlasting fellowship with those we love, respect, and hold dear. We'll meet saints from ages long ago and have endless communion with them, far from being some cold antiseptic or boring abode heaven is pictures as a wonderful joyful banquet filled with happy guests there's friendship warmth energy excitement but heaven is also rest not total rest not a cessation of all activity but it is rest from earth's labors rest from sorrow rest from pain Revelation 14 verse 13 says, Blessed are the dead who died in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Other passages like Hebrews 4 verses 9 and 10 and 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7 also note the same thing. And like I said, we should remember that the word rest doesn't mean a total cessation of activity. We're not going to be bored in heaven. It'll be satisfying rest, a rest from the rigors of our physical existence. As one writer put it in the Bible and the life hereafter, the soul now rests from life's competition, its toil, its sorrow, its pain, its mental anguish, and especially its sin. And finally, heaven is good company. Imagine the conversations that we'll have in heaven. Not just with the great saints, but with God, with his Son and his Holy Spirit. There will be good company in heaven. Not just interesting people or famous people, but righteous people. Revelation 21 verse 27 notes that we will not have to deal with abomination and lies in the afterlife. So that means no arguments No greedy people, no pettiness, no jealousy, no filthiness. And what a relief that's going to be. In heaven, you won't have to be on your guard anymore. In heaven, you won't have to worry about where the next temptation is going to come from or what the next scandal in the news is going to be. In heaven, you won't worry if today is the day that you get confronted by a mugger or harassed by a boss You won't have to be on your guard in heaven. And what a relief that will be. Now, if you're not a Christian, you really ought to be. Let me tell you, in short, how to become a Christian. The New Testament says that if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and you're willing to confess that belief, that's Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. And if you're willing to put your sins behind you and repent of those things, Acts 2, verse 38. And if you will be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then you will become a disciple of Jesus Christ. You will be a Christian. Mark 16, verse 16 sums it up very nicely. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he who does not believe shall be condemned. And we just got done talking about the difference between saved and condemned, what those two conditions will look like for all eternity. You have been fairly warned, but you have also been fairly encouraged. Choose heaven. Choose life. If we can help you in any way, then let Montevista Vista know.
1: Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at MontevistaCOC.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Montevista Vista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street, we have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 9.30 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Monta Vista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montavistacoc.com. Hallelujah.